bodybuilders, powerlifters, or certain types of athletes? Well, in today's video, we're gonna find that this is definitely not the case. And no matter who you are, you should likely be including some form or variation of heavy resistance training into your routine. Now, you still might be pushing back and saying, well, wait a minute, Jonathan, I do things like consistent long distance running, throw in some weight training throughout the week, but it's on a lighter weight or lighter load, maybe even throwing in some yoga in there. Well, still probably not enough. We'll talk about why this is by taking a look at the muscles, discussing aging, and of course, talk about how we could add this type of training to a current routine or even a new routine. It's gonna be an important one. So let's jump right into this anatomical awesomeness. So first let's start with the why. Why do these skeletal muscles require heavy resistance training? And therefore, why should all of us participate in this? Well, maybe you've heard some alarming statistics that starting in our 30s, we can lose anywhere from three to 5% of our muscle mass per decade. But when we get to our 50s, we can lose as much as 10% of our muscle mass per decade. That's quite alarming and kind of scary to think about, but you might also be thinking, well, wait, can't we combat that or at least slow that process down through exercise? And the answer is yes. And that's one of the main points of this video. But many of the other forms of exercise just aren't as effective at preserving muscle mass like heavy resistance training is. So why is heavy resistance training better at preserving muscle mass than the other types of exercise? Well, the answer to that lies in how muscles actually work. So let's use the biceps brachii muscle as our example here, but keep in mind we can apply this information to any of the other skeletal muscles that we would be working out or exercising. But if we were to take a look at this whole biceps muscle, the whole muscle is going to be made up of thousands of string-like cells called muscle fibers. And you could just even call them muscle cells. So if I use those terms interchangeably, we're talking about the same thing. But these muscle fibers have an amazing ability to contract. And when they contract, this would cause a pulling on the bone via the tendon, and that would move your skeleton in certain directions depending on what muscle you're contracting. Now, another thing that's important that we talk about with these muscle fibers is that if we analyze the muscle fibers within this muscle, we would see that some of them are classified as fast twitch muscle fibers and others are classified as slow twitch muscle fibers. And this is definitely important to our muscle mass story. So why do the different fiber types matter when it comes to a reduction in muscle mass as we age? Well, let's go over some of the characteristics of these fiber types and then we'll bring that together. The fast twitch muscle fibers, as the name implies, contract with more velocity and more force and tend to have a greater diameter when compared to the slow twitch fibers. Now, one of the drawbacks of the fast twitch fibers is that they fatigue rather quickly. And we do have to acknowledge to all the anatomy and physiology geeks out there that we could further classify or subdivide the fast twitch fibers, but that's for another time. The slow twitch fibers contract with less velocity, less force, and have a smaller diameter, but they are fatigue resistant. They're great for endurance type activities. So again, how does this relate to reduction of muscle mass as we age? Well, when we have this reduction of muscle mass, it's not like the mass reduction is uniform between the fiber types. And what I mean by that is it's not like 50% of that reduction in muscle mass comes from the slow twitch and the other 50% comes from the fast twitch. It is actually much more biased to the fast twitch fibers, meaning we lose a much greater proportion of the fast twitch fibers as we age as compared to the slow twitch fibers. So this probably raises another question for you. Why do we lose such a greater proportion of the fast twitch fibers versus the slow twitch fibers with aging? Well, a big part of this answer has to do with the sequence in which the nervous system recruits the slow twitch fibers versus how it recruits the fast twitch fibers. And this will also help us to understand why certain activities 
do a better job at recruiting or engaging those fast twitch fibers. So let's get into this by talking about the nervous system, motor recruitment, and pencils. But real quick, I want to talk about this cool device on the back of my arm by saying thank you to the sponsor of today's video, NutriSense. NutriSense is a continuous glucose monitoring program that monitors your blood sugar levels, which are more appropriately referred to as your blood glucose levels. It does it through this nifty little device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, that goes on the back of your arm, or for you anatomy nerds out there, on the posterior brachium. The CGM then easily syncs with the NutriSense app, which allows you to monitor your blood glucose levels throughout the day and see how things like food, sleep, exercise, and even how stress impacts your blood glucose levels. For me, it was very interesting and a lot of fun to do little food experiments to see which types of foods might spike my blood glucose levels. Probably not a big shocker what that ice cream was going to do. But it was also awesome to see how exercise, like stimulating those fast twitch muscle fibers, could affect those blood glucose levels, which could help provide valuable insight on things like how I might time certain food types to optimize athletic performance and even recovery. The NutriSense CGM program also comes with helpful advice from a dietitian, which means that it can help you understand your glucose numbers, provide some accountability, and also help you find that ideal personalized diet. That first month of the dietitian is actually free, and then just $50 a month after that. So if you're interested in trying this amazing program and getting one of these nifty little CGMs, Check out the link on the screen and use the discount code HUMAN25. We'll also include that link as well as the information in the description below. So how does the nervous system and motor unit recruitment help us to better understand why we lose a greater proportion of fast twitch fibers? And what in the world did I mean by pencils? Well, here are the pencils, and this is representing a full muscle like the biceps. You can totally tell that it resembles the real biceps, but really we're just using this to help us understand motor unit and motor unit recruitment. So pretend this is a whole biceps, like a cross section through it. Each of the pencils is representing an individual muscle fiber. The ones that I colored with black Sharpie are representing the fast twitch fibers. The ones that I didn't color in black Sharpie are representing the slow twitch fibers. Now I do want to just mention that we could go through individual muscles throughout the body and we would see that each muscle has a different proportion of fast twitch versus slow twitch. And even between individuals, we could see a difference in those proportions. Now, we could make the argument that a muscle that has a higher proportion of fast twitch fibers might be at greater risk of reduction, but let's not focus too much on that and just focus on the principle of how these different fiber types are recruited, and that'll also help us with activity choice with exercise. So to do this, we need to define what a motor unit is. A motor unit is the motor neuron and the muscle fibers that it controls. Now, two important things with this. One, that we understand that each muscle is subdivided into multiple motor units. So for example, this little grouping of fast twitch fibers would be its own motor unit, and then we could come over here and say this grouping of slow twitch fibers would be its own motor unit, and each one of those motor units would be con controlled by a different motor neuron. The other reason why this is so important is because there's this thing called the all or nothing principle. And what the all or nothing principle says is that when that motor neuron fires or sends the signal, every muscle fiber that it controls will contract at full force. And so think about how important that is now to have individual motor units or the whole muscle broken down into multiple motor units because think of the opposite. What if we had one motor neuron controlling every single muscle fiber per muscle, so like one giant motor unit per muscle? You could see that that would be a big problem for the signal being sent into that muscle because every time that motor neuron fired, every single muscle fiber of the muscle would contract and we'd be contracting at full force with every single muscle. And that would be a problem with force modulation, right? 
but because we have these muscles broken down into individual motor units, it really helps us to modulate force based upon the activity we're engaging in, or if, you know, I'm lifting a probe versus a very heavy weight. Actually use this example of me lifting the probe or curling the probe as compared to, say, like curling a heavier weight. Now, I do want to mention, or at least clarify, because I kind of alluded to this earlier, that the motor units are going to be subdivided into fast twitch motor units that you can see, and even slow twitch motor units. So maybe a slow twitch motor unit here, slow twitch motor unit over there. But we're not going to have this mixing and matching within the motor units. Fast twitch motor units, slow twitch motor units. And what we find is that when we start to lift a weight or engage the muscles, the first motor units that we recruit are the slow twitch motor units. So let's say I've got a 10 pound weight and I start to curl it. I'm likely only going to need my slow twitch motor units to move that weight. Let's say I increase it to 15 or 20 pounds. I'll recruit some more of those slow twitch motor units. And I'm going to continue to do this until I've exhausted all of my slow twitch motor units, meaning I've recruited all of them. And if I continue to increase the weight, then I'll start tapping in and recruiting the fast twitch motor units in sequence as I continue to increase the load. So this gives us the idea of why we need some level of heavy resistance to actually even stimulate and engage those fast twitch motor units or fast twitch muscle fibers. And one of the other things that we can do, because we can get creative beyond just doing heavy lifting, we could also engage these fast twitch muscle fibers and recruit these fast twitch motor units by doing things that are fast and explosive. Think like a vertical jump or a full-fledged sprint. And one quick thing I want to address about our little pencil muscle model here is that you actually don't have a motor unit that is this small, meaning a motor neuron only controlling like five or six muscle fibers. That's just, again, for a learning device here. The motor units, FYI, and the biceps are more like one motor neuron controlling over a thousand muscle fibers. So now we have a pretty good idea as to why these fast twitch fibers are mostly contributing to this overall loss of muscle mass as we age. And in many cases, they're contributing to pretty much all of it when we're comparing that to the slow twitch fibers. Now, you probably have come up with some ideas about activities or exercises that we could choose from to help stimulate or at least preserve some of these fast twitch fibers. And we're definitely gonna talk about those exercises in just a second. But I do wanna approach this from like a lifestyle approach or a lifestyle example. Let's say we had a person in their 50s or 60s and they're actually relatively active. They're doing chores around the house. Maybe they're working out in the yard, doing gardening, yard work. You can see that a lot of those activities would recruit and stimulate those slow twitch fibers. But the majority of household activities or activities of daily living don't really require recruitment of those fast twitch fibers. And so if this person isn't also incorporating like a strength training routine into their week, you could see how those fast twitch fibers could go for extended periods of time without being stimulated, thereby contributing to that loss over time and as we age. And let's take this a little bit further. Let's say we have someone who's doing more than just the activities of daily living. They also have an exercise routine. And some of their exercise choices could be like steady state cardio at a moderate intensity. They're working, but they could still hold a conversation while they're running or cycling. Or maybe they picked yoga. Or maybe someone also picked something like a form of resistance training, but lighter loads with higher repetitions. Now, let me be clear, there is nothing wrong with these exercise choices. There's obvious benefits to them, things like cardiovascular improvements, improvement in mobility and flexibility, and even improvements in muscular endurance. So if you like doing these types of exercises, 
continue to do them. It's just that we could sprinkle on some additional exercise choices to give us some amazing benefits to helping preserve and maintain these fast twitch fibers. And another cool thing is that it actually takes much less than most people think. The amount of work required to maintain and even make improvements in the strength of these fast twitch fibers is about 10 to 15 working sets per muscle group per week. Now that's not a lot in my opinion, and some of the data is even showing that this could be as little as 10 working sets per muscle group per week. Now the amount of load or weight that we would need for this type of training is a weight that's heavy enough that you could only lift like four to eight repetitions. Now, once we start getting to that seven to eight range and crossing beyond that, we're getting to this strength versus hypertrophy crossover here. And so a lot of people who really wanna focus on strength will even increase that weight to where they could only do it maybe like two to six repetitions. The point is it has to be a relatively heavy load for you. Now, what's interesting about this is that we could spread these working sets throughout the week in a creative way or some people will actually lump them into one day. For example, the endurance athletes will often do a dedicated strength training day for their legs because they've got so many other things going on with their legs with endurance training because they're on their feet running or cycling. But again, you can get pretty creative with all this. Now, I do wanna acknowledge another thing with the endurance community, that yes, there are naturally days where you increase the intensity because you increase the speed of the run and you can start pulling in some of those fast twitch fibers as the speed increases in the run or if you're on a bike. But there's still gonna be a percentage of those fibers that we're li likely not tapping into. So again, the benefit of this high resistance strength training is going to be there. Or we could also get a little bit creative with some explosive exercises. Including explosive exercises into this type of training is where it really gets fun, in my opinion, because it even opens up the doors wider for more variety and more fun while you're exercising and working out. So remember, when we mentioned how we recruit the muscle fibers, one of the main ways was to increase the load, and the more load we add, the more we have to recruit those fast twitch fibers. The other way was to do something as fast or as explosive as possible, like a full-fledged sprint or a vertical jump. So you could get creative with these 10 to 15 working sets where maybe on one day you did a squat or a squat variation of heavy weightlifting of five to eight sets. And then another day you decided to do box jumps, which would work those same muscle groups in this explosive manner, but kind of change the variety and have some fun with different exercise choices. For the upper body, you could do bench press one day, and then on another day, you could do explosive medicine ball throws against a wall right in front of you. So again, a lot of fun things that you can kind of mix and match to kind of test your abilities and have some fun with this type of training. So let's wrap this up with two thoughts. Well, one of them is more of a concern because some people are concerned that this type of training might get their muscles too big. Now, some of you are out there probably thinking, well, why wouldn't you want your muscles to get big? Well, there are plenty of people who are not under that umbrella and think, okay, I don't want big muscles. Can I get these strength benefits without getting huge, if you will? And the answer is yes. This form of training, this type of strength training or true strength training doesn't cause a huge adaptation as far as hypertrophy or an increase in muscle size. You can get great increases in strength without increasing the size of the muscle very much, again, with this type of training. People who are trying to build muscle as far as size, we call this hypertrophy again, they're gonna need a lot more volume than 10 working sets throughout the week. Increased repetitions, and increased sets, etc. So for those of you who are concerned about that, don't worry too much about that. The other thing I wanna mention and talk about is foot speed. And what do I mean by foot speed? Foot speed is definitely important from an athletic perspective, but I wanna focus on it from the perspective of aging. And let me bring it up like this. Maybe some of you have had a parent or a grandparent or another loved one 
who's tripped and fallen later in their life. And a lot of the times this can be very detrimental, especially if they break a bone. You often hear about how bad it is when someone breaks a hip later in life. Remember, we're talking about all these fast twitch fibers that are contributing to this loss of muscle mass as we age. And these are the fibers that can contract with the most velocity, contributing to our speed. When we trip when we're in our 20s or even 30s, a lot of the times we have the foot speed to catch ourselves with our feet without actually falling onto our hands or anything else. So what if we were able to help preserve these fibers and therefore the speed later into life and help reduce the risk of falls and tripping? And you could do this again by recruiting these fast twitch fibers with heavy lifting. You could even have somebody do things like doing hopscotch type activities in the gym where you're having them bounce their feet or move their feet from box to box as quickly as possible, helping to preserve that foot speed. And again, potentially helping to reduce the risk of falls. And thanks for watching everyone. Hopefully you learned something new and useful from watching this video. If you're interested in checking out NutriSense, that link is in the description below. And let's engage those fast twitch muscle fibers of our forearm and hand muscles so that you can quickly click the like and subscribe button, as well as type like the flash in the comment section. Yes, that was nerdy. We'll see you in the next video. That was how to save your muscles from aging from Institute of Human Anatomy. Awesome, awesome information. Thank you for listening. One of the beautiful things about exercise is that it can be done in so many different ways and molded to fit your goals and interests. But are there some forms of exercise and principles that should be non-negotiable or absolute staples in your exercise routine? Well, if you're not only trying to optimize your fitness, but also your overall health and longevity, then the answer is yes. So in today's video, we're gonna discuss some of these incredible health and fitness benefits that comes with this form of exercise. And this will help us understand why almost everyone should consider it. And of course, we'll talk about how to do this form of training and how to incorporate it into your weekly routine. We'll also have a little bit of a fun discussion dispelling some of the myths around lactic acid and what lactic acid actually does to your muscles. It's gonna be an awesome one. So let's do this. So what is this all important type of exercise? Well, it's a form of that dreaded cardio. And maybe I should say dreaded only for some because there are definitely plenty of you out there that can't get enough of this type of training. But this type of cardiovascular training is designed to build your aerobic foundation or your aerobic base. And it's often referred to as zone two training. And the zone two type of training is a form of steady state cardio done at about a moderate level of intensity. And again, we're gonna definitely talk about how you can find your own personal zone two, as well as how to incorporate it into your routine. But let's first answer this question of why should everyone consider this type of training? Because it makes sense for somebody like an endurance athlete or people who are interested in long distance running or long distance cycling, makes sense for them to do this type of training. But what about somebody like a power lifter or maybe even someone like me who likes to play a lot of basketball? Because I can tell you, we didn't do a lot of zone two training to get in shape for basketball. Well, we're gonna answer this by talking about the incredible physiological adaptations and changes that occur within your body due to zone two training and how that translates to what I would consider universal fitness and health benefits. Zone two training will strengthen the muscle of the heart, which obviously will help to improve fitness. And this can also lead to improvements in resting heart rate as well as even blood pressure, which that can help to reduce your overall risk of cardiovascular conditions over the long term. 
Zone two training also has an amazing effect on your muscles, specifically the slow twitch muscle cells or the slow twitch muscle fibers. Now, if you've watched this before, you've likely heard us talk about slow twitch versus fast twitch muscle fibers and even some of the intermediate fibers. But if you're new to this, let me give you a quick synopsis on fiber type. If you were to look at a whole muscle, you would see that it was made up of thousands and thousands of muscle cells or muscle fibers. And some of those muscle fibers would be classified as slow twitch, and these would be fatigue resistant. Think of them as your endurance type fibers because they utilize oxygen, are more aerobically based. Whereas the fast twitch fibers don't utilize as much oxygen, are more anaerobically based, but they can contract with more velocity, produce more force, but they tap out quicker, meaning they don't have as much fatigue resistance. And activities that would engage your fast twitch fibers are things like sprinting, jumping, or even heavy resistance training. And it's actually good we've brought up the fast twitch fibers because again, we're talking about why should everyone consider this type of training, especially if zone two is mostly going to cause physiological adaptations directly with the slow twitch fibers. Well, we're gonna make the case that developing those slow twitch fibers through zone two training is going to also have some indirect benefits for these fast twitch fibers. Consistent zone two training helps to promote the development of new capillaries, which are tiny exchange vessels that exchange nutrients and waste products between the bloodstream and the tissues, and muscle tissue would be included in this. So think we're literally growing more of these tiny tubes or tiny capillaries. They're gonna penetrate into the muscle tissue, bringing in more blood and more oxygen, which those slow twitch muscle fibers are going to be more than happy to gobble up that extra oxygen during those aerobic activities, and you could see how that could improve fitness. Not only can we bring in more oxygen, but if we have more capillaries and more blood, we can bring in more of other substances like fats and carbohydrates, which could be utilized to create the energy currency of our muscle cells or muscle fibers, that ATP. And fat is gonna be more important in just a second because we're gonna talk about how zone two primarily utilizes fat, but bringing in more carbs can also be beneficial to those fast twitch muscle fibers because they primarily utilize glucose, a carbohydrate. And so you can see that's one of our indirect benefits to the fast twitch fibers through this zone two training. Now, we also wanna think it's not just about bringing in more substances to the muscle tissue with this increased capillarization. It's also about being able to more effectively pull things out and away from the muscles, things like metabolic byproducts. So if we're more effective at removing metabolic byproducts from the muscle, that could benefit any of the muscle fiber types. And my favorite physiological benefit that occurs with zone two training is that the mitochondria within the slow twitch muscle fibers will increase in size and therefore their work capacity becoming more efficient. Plus the overall total number of mitochondria will increase in those slow twitch muscle fibers. And all of us who have taken biology are probably trained to think mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell because it creates ATP in the presence of oxygen. And that is absolutely true. And from an exercise perspective, again, we're just building more upon this. We've increased the blood flow already. We've increased the amount of oxygen we can bring in. And now that oxygen can be funneled into more mitochondria and creating more ATP, which would increase our fitness and our work capacity. But improving and increasing the mitochondria is more than just about improving our fitness and work capacity. There are tremendous metabolic long-term benefits that occur from developing our mitochondria that can help reduce our risk of conditions that plague our society. And I'm definitely gonna talk about those in just a second, but first I do need to clear some things up with lactic acid. Lactic acid is a metabolic byproduct from a form of anaerobic metabolism called anaerobic glycolysis. And maybe you've heard of anaerobic glycolysis before. 
But as the name implies, this is when the cell, or in this case the muscle fiber, would break down glucose to form ATP in the absence of oxygen. And in general, as exercise intensity increases, this would cause the muscle fibers to rely more on anaerobic glycolysis and would therefore result in a buildup or an accumulation of more lactic acid within the muscle fibers. And there are two things that we need to address or clarify with lactic acid. One is that lactic acid under physiological conditions primarily exists as lactate in our bodies. Yes, you could likely get away with using lactic acid and lactate interchangeably as most people in the exercise physiology world would know what you're talking about, but they technically are different because as you're going through anaerobic glycolysis and building up lactic acid, it actually quickly dissociates into lactate and a hydrogen ion. And it's that hydrogen ion that contributes to the acidity that's building up within the muscle fiber. And this acidity does need to be dealt with because this could potentially impair or slow the overall function of the muscle fiber. And this buildup of lactic acid, or what we should more appropriately say lactate and the hydrogen ion, can sometimes give lactate a little bit of a bad rap or mischaracterize it, which is the second thing we need to address. Lactate is sometimes referred to as a metabolic waste product. Yes, we have to manage the accumulating levels that can occur during exercise, but it's not like it's this toxic substance that our body is trying to rid itself of or excrete. It is a metabolic byproduct because we're gonna find that when oxygen becomes more readily available again, say like when you decrease your exercise intensity, or maybe there's some cells or tissues that are close by to those exercising muscles that have more oxygen available, what we're gonna see is that that lactate can be transported into the mitochondria to make more ATP. So let's use an exercise example to illustrate how cool this is. Let's say we start off exercising at a light to moderate intensity. And at that level of intensity, we should have enough oxygen available to produce ATP for our working muscles through mostly aerobic pathways, which means we're primarily gonna be recruiting those slow twitch muscle fibers and mostly using fat in the mitochondria as our energy source. But as we increase the intensity, let's say we're jogging and we increase our running speed, or this could even be applied to certain weight training scenarios. Maybe we're doing multiple repetitions of heavy squats. The point is we're increasing the intensity. And as we increase that intensity, we're gonna to have to start recruiting some of those fast twitch muscle fibers and starting to shift to more of those anaerobic pathways like anaerobic glycolysis. And we know that we can only maintain a certain level of intensity for a certain amount of time. The higher the intensity, the less amount of time that we can sustain it for before we either have to back off, slow down, or even just rest. And what's happening is, is we're depleting our ATP while we're accumulating more lactate. So what is our body going to do about this? So you'll likely notice that when you pull back from a bout of high intensity exercise or enter this rest and recovery phase, that you'll be breathing heavy. And you might think, why would I need to breathe heavy if high intensity exercise is mostly requiring anaerobic pathways or anaerobic metabolism that doesn't require oxygen? Well, it's not like the aerobic pathways just shut down. You're essentially getting to this point of intensity where you just can't bring the oxygen into the muscle, the mitochondria, and process it fast enough. So then you have to shift to and rely on other energy systems that are faster, like the anaerobic glycolysis. But the drawback of that is they're fast, but they don't produce much ATP. And so you can only sustain that for a short amount of time. And we get to this problem that we mentioned earlier where we've diminished the ATP within the muscle and also accumulated lactate. And this is one of the main reasons why you're breathing heavily during those rest periods because you're trying to deal with this. And one of the things you're going to do is actually replenish the ATP 
by breathing in all that oxygen and replacing it aerobically by utilizing fats and even carbohydrates, but also we can utilize that lactate that we mentioned earlier. It's almost like hitting two birds with one stone. We need to bring down the lactate, and we can do that when oxygen is present because we can funnel it into the mitochondria, like I mentioned earlier, and help to bolster up ATP even further, which is ridiculously amazing. And so we're gonna talk about two pathways that we can deal with this lactate, one right at the local level, at the muscle we just exercised, as well as systemically throughout the body. So let's say you consistently participate in zone two training. You improve the size and quality of your mitochondria and even increase the overall number within those slow twitch muscle fibers. Based on that, you could see that that would make you better equipped to process increasing levels of lactate that occurs during exercise and even aid in recovery. And yes, it's those slow twitch muscle fibers that primarily benefit or have those physiological adaptations from ZO2 training, like creating these higher quality and higher number of mitochondria. But again, that doesn't mean that the fast twitch fibers cannot benefit from this. The fast twitch fibers actually produce the majority of lactate, but they don't have a lot of mitochondria. So they're gonna need a little bit of help processing the lactate they produce. And one of the cool things that can happen is that the lactate produced in say like a fast twitch fiber could be transferred to a neighboring slow twitch fiber within the same muscle, therefore making it easier for the fast twitch fibers to also recover more quickly and effectively between bouts of higher intensity exercise. Now there are going to be limitations to this. And what I mean by that is limitations on how much lactate we can process at the local level within that actual muscle. Yes, if somebody is more fit and they have higher quality and a greater number of mitochondria, they could process more of that lactate but eventually, no matter who you are, you'll get to a point where it's too much and you'll get some spillover. And what we mean by spillover is when that excess lactate that can't be processed in the muscle alone will spill over and move into the bloodstream. And you can actually measure lactate levels going up as exercise intensity increases. I actually have a lactate meter at home where I can poke my finger, get a little blood, and see what my lactate levels are at. And that's one way to figure out your zone two. We'll get into that in just a second. But once it's in the bloodstream, you now have the ability to have multiple other cells and tissues help you process this lactate. And one of those is the amazing heart. And yes, I'm a little ashamed of this because we are in an anatomy lab and I tried to draw real hard, just, just didn't work well. So this is what we get, but the amazing heart has these cardiac muscle fibers that also can improve their mitochondrial number and their quality through consistent training. And so that lactate can go into the muscle cells of the heart, get into the mitochondria of the heart muscle fibers, and make more ATP. We can also send that lactate to the liver. Now the liver does something a little different. Instead of funneling it into mitochondria and creating more ATP out of it, it will actually convert that lactate into glucose through a process called gluconeogenesis, which is pretty beneficial because that can help maintain blood glucose levels, and that glucose could be utilized later on for future production of ATP. So how do you actually do zone two training and find your own personal zone two? Well, at the beginning of the video, we mentioned zone two is a form of steady state cardio done at a moderate intensity. And that steady state is important. When you're doing zone two training, you don't wanna be bouncing between the different training zones or different training intensities and just average it out to zone two. You actually wanna stay just within that zone two throughout the duration of the exercise session and that will give you the most physiological benefits and adaptations. 
Now, if you've never heard of the different training zones, that's okay. The endurance athlete world talks about these training zones a lot. Sometimes they have five zones, six zones, seven zones. I personally like the five, but one would be the easiest, five would be the hardest. And again, we're gonna mostly focus on this zone too, obviously. And we're gonna talk about how to find it with the cheapest way, just by yourself, all the way up to paying people and buying your own equipment. So let's start with the least expensive way and actually one of the most effective ways to find your zone two. And by least expensive, I mean free. And that is the talk test. Zone two should be done at a level of intensity where you could still maintain a conversation with someone. Not at this level of conversation, it needs to be more difficult than that. But if you were on the phone with someone while you were doing zone two training, they could tell that you were exercising. They could tell that you were breathing more heavily, but you could still maintain the majority of that conversation. You might have to take a few breaths in between sentences, but you could get full sentences out. And the nice thing about this is it's actually fairly accurate when you compare it to laboratory testing, which we'll talk about some of those tests after we get to my least favorite method of checking for zone two, and that is based upon heart rate zones. Using heart rate zones, or I should say a percentage of your max heart rate to find your zone two isn't my favorite, at least initially, because there's some variation in this. Some will say that 60 to 70% of your max heart rate is where you'd find your zone two. Others will say 65 to 75%. So you can see there's a wide range there. Plus, you would need to know what your true max heart rate is. There are crude equations to help you with this, like 220 minus your age and some other equations, but there are plenty of people where these calculations are quite a bit off. And so if you just don't have any of that data and you're just basing it off of these percentages, you may not be in your true zone too. Now, if you were to go to a lab and find your actual max heart rate, that could start to narrow it down and make this way of finding your zone two a little bit more accurate. But taking it a step further to the next testing method to get what we call lactate testing is even better. Lactate testing is when you test the amount of lactate in your blood. And we know that zone two occurs at a blood lactate level of about 1.9 to 2.0 millimoles. So you'd wanna stay in that 1.9 to 2.0 range throughout the duration of your exercise. Now, are you gonna go to a professional lab and have this done? Are you gonna buy your own blood lactate meter? Those are questions you would have to answer for yourself. But the limitation of going to a professional lab is it would tell you your blood lactate on that day in that moment. And you could correlate your 2.0 or your 1.9 or 2.0 with the heart rate that it occurred at, and you could use that as somewhat of a training protocol, but lactate levels can change and vary from day to day. For example, if you're more fatigued, you had a really intense exercise week, you're more fatigued, that could change your blood lactate level and how it correlates with your heart rate, and even improvements in fitness could change this a little bit. So the most accurate way, you could maybe even consider it the craziest way, three to $400 crazy, I guess, because that's what a lactate meter would cost. And you could just test yourself while you're exercising in zone two periodically throughout the week. And just to reiterate, if you're just starting out with this zone two training, that talk test is a really good place to start. I've actually done some nerdy testing on my own where I've run in zone two while talking and just trying to see if I can stay in it with doing the talk test. And I've used my lactate meter alongside with it and it actually is pretty close to that two millimoles. So good place to start. And then if you're using wearables with heart rate monitors, you can start to narrow in about that range of where your heart rate would be with your zone two. But one of the things you're probably also wondering is frequency. How often should I be doing this? Well, when people are first starting off and they haven't done much exercise at all, we try to get them to at least one to two hours starting off with the ideal of them getting to three to four hours a week. I like to at least get four hours a week. And then the next question is, 
people will sometimes say, well, can I lump that time into one or two sessions, especially if they're starting out that one to two hour range? And if that's all you're going to give me is like one to two days a week, then we would definitely take it. But the ideal uh, way of doing this for the maximum physiological changes and benefits would be to spread it out throughout the week with 45-minute to 60-minute sessions about three to four days a week. Now, clearly, Zone 2 training isn't the only form of training that would be recommended if someone's concerned about their overall fitness, health, and longevity. You'd want to incorporate strength training as well, and ideally even adding one higher-intensity cardio day, like a VO2 max day that we've actually done a video on, and we'll link that to this video. And people who are just concerned about this overall general health, fitness, and longevity, and they're just wanting to have good strength, good cardiovascular fitness, you can get a pretty good split by doing, say, like three weight training or strength training days, three cardio days, and you can almost have your cardio and strength training on different days. But if you're throwing a VO2 max session in there as well, sometimes you're going to have to double up some of the cardio and the strength training on the same day. Now, if you were to do a workout where you did like strength at the beginning and your zone two right after it or vice versa, would you make gains in both of those areas if you consistently maintained your routine over the long term? Absolutely. But if you're one of those that's extremely concerned about maximizing your strength gains and maybe even hypertrophy training, getting a little bit bigger, then it would be best if you actually separated the workouts by a few hours or at least maybe you did your strength training in the morning and your cardio training in the later afternoon. And I do want to repeat one thing that I mentioned earlier. When you're doing zone two, you really want to stay steady within zone two. When people sometimes figure out their heart rate range for their zone two, they'll sometimes get into this workout where their heart rate spikes, goes down, goes above zone two, below zone two, but then when they look at their data after, they're like, oh, my average heart rate was within my zone two. You don't want to be doing that. That's not nearly as effective. You want to stay right within that zone two. I kind of think of it as this churning and this constant stimulation to your mitochondria, teaching those mitochondria to utilize and metabolize fats more effectively and creating this metabolic efficiency or even metabolic flexibility. And what you can kind of think of that meaning is that you get really good at teaching your body how to maximize the use of your macronutrients. You're using the fats how you need to use the fats. You're using the carbohydrates how you're supposed to be using the carbohydrates, which is pretty much the opposite of what occurs with things like metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, and even diabetes. And this is one of the most important health benefits with zone two training, creating this metabolic efficiency or flexibility. And I apologize it took me so long to get here, but unfortunately, these metabolic dysfunctions are pretty prevalent in our society. And someone with like type two diabetes, the body is not processing or metabolizing fats properly. It's not metabolizing carbohydrates properly. And then you get insulin resistance. So if there is anything close to a magic bullet to help reduce our risk of these metabolic dysfunctions like type two diabetes, and even push some of them into remission, zone two training would be one of the items right at the top of the list. And of course, it wouldn't be an Institute of Human Anatomy video if I didn't get a chance to say how excited I am about one of my favorite lifelong learning tools, and that is Brilliant. Brilliant.org is an amazing interactive online learning platform for STEM subjects, and I really believe it is one of the best and most fun, engaging ways to learn math, science, and computer science. I've been using Brilliant for almost two years now, and it has definitely helped me to refine and sharpen past skills, as well as develop new ones. I recently started one of their new lessons called Exploring Data Visually, which is all about analyzing and interpreting data from visualizing charts and graphs, which has definitely been helpful for me. Plus, Brilliant is constantly adding more of these lessons each and every month 
So you'll definitely find lessons and courses that are applicable to you no matter where you are on your educational journey. So if you're interested in checking out this amazing learning platform, go to brilliant.org IHA to start a free 30-day trial. Plus, the first 200 people will get 20% off their annual subscription. We'll also include that information and the link in the description below. Thanks for watching our Crazy Anatomy videos, everyone. Like and subscribe if you feel the need. And of course, leave some comments below. Let us know what you thought of the video, what you think of Zone 2 training, and if you're going to incorporate it into your weekly routine. And we'll see you next time.